0: Here
1: comes the sun, little darling. Here comes the sun. I say, it's all right. It's all right. Here comes the
0: sun. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Voices from the Front Lines, your national movement building show. You're on KPFK. FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM Santa Barbara, and streaming live on the web at kpfgate.org. You can also check us out at voicesfromthefrontlines.com. I'm your host, Derek Mann. I'm here with our co-host, Channing Martinez. We are thrilled because we pulled off one of the most successful events of the Labor Community Strategy Center and our new National Leadership School for Strategic Organizing. It was called The Genius of Walter Rodney, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. And yes, you can get that book as a premium for our fundraising drive today. The speakers were Channing Martinez, Eric Mann, Abani Countess from the U.S. Africa Bridge Building Project, Jamala Rogers from the Organization of Black Struggle, Ashley Henderson from the Highlander Center, and Akuna Uka from the Strategy. But the key speaker was Robin D.G. Kelly, an amazing professor at UCLA, and I'll be introducing him in the actual program. So please give money at 818-985-5735. As you'll hear, for $100, you can get a copy of How Europe Underdeveloped Africa or a copy of my book, Dispatches from Durban, first-hand commentaries on the World Conference Against Racism. And for $250, you get the amazing 4DVD set, Paul Robeson, Portrait of the Artist. So Channing, before we start, I want to tell you that the design you did on the actual Strategy Center Movement Center was gorgeous and brilliant. It was like creating a set with swag bags for the twenty-five people who come, quotes from Walter Rodney up on the wall. Oh, just a beautiful center we have in South Central. So, as one of the main organizers of the event, and next week we'll hear your comments. What are your thoughts going into listening to Robin?
1: Well, thank you for that compliment. It did take a long time and a lot of work to put together the actual space and the event itself. You know, the main lesson that I learned from the event and from Walter Rodney's book is that, you know, neocolonialism and underdevelopment is happening here in Los Angeles and it's happening today. It's not a thing of the past. And one thing we're coming to realize is that the transnational corporations are running L.A., and the Democrats in L.A. are governing them in a neocolonialist fashion. As just one example, everything else in L.A. has been canceled for the last two years, but they did not cancel the Super Bowl. In fact, they spent billions of dollars on the Sophie Stadium. They, you know, who was able to do that? There's this guy, Stan Crokey. I, I don't know how to say his name. I think that's how you say his name. Cronky. Sorry. Who's the billionaire? Supposedly, the stadium was built with all private money. But no one wants to talk about the displacement of the black community in, in Inglewood as a result of the high rising taxes and the high rising rents. No one wants to talk about the homelessness in Los Angeles. And supposedly, one of our panelists said that the amount that they spent for the stadium could actually end world hunger. And look at what the politicians and the elected officials allowed to happen in Los Angeles. So I don't know what to do with that yet, but I know that it gives us a new analysis of the system to figure out how to take that into the streets.
0: In your last minute, you talked about reading how Europe underdeveloped Africa and Belize. Tell us about that. Uh, it was
1: fantastic, sitting on side of the beach aside. Um, you know, what's interesting is reading the book in a third world country, neocolonialism and colonialism is more viewable just up front and in your face. It's not hidden. Um, the elected officials are basically carrying out a neocolonial state, and it's very clear. And being able to now analyze that on a basic state gave me the tools to actually see it in a more complicated situation here in Los Angeles.
0: You know, we, we asked all the people, you know, over 500 people registered for this event. And we said, please write us at info at the And that's the one we're going to use for a while. We so far got 10 wonderful responses from all over the country. Please, after you listen to this show, write us to info at strategycenter.org and contribute to KPFK by calling 818-985-5735 for $100. And all this is contributed by the Strategy Center. You can get a copy of How Europe, Undeveloped Africa by Walter Rodney. You can also get Dispatches from Durban by Eric Mann and Portrait of an Artist for $250 by the amazing Paul Robeson. All power to the people.
1: And with that, let's hear the clip of Robin Kelly.
0: So Robin and I have known each other for a very long time. It began when we were building the Bus Riders Union. And my friend Victor Wallace said, have you read this book called Race Rebels? I said, no. He says it's an amazing book because it's got a chapter about the struggle on the buses in Montgomery 10 and 20 years before, where... The fight was every day because Robin went into the actual records of the bus company, and there were bus drivers pulling guns on people, there were black people pulling guns back on the drivers, there were people being kicked off the front and said you got to go around the back and people said i'm not going around the back i'm going in the front. What he conveyed was the complexity of the class struggle and the race struggle, of course, race rebels but he did it with the most meticulous investigation of the actual reports from the bus company that he can document. I do this carefully, but I do think Robin D. G. Kelly is in the tradition of W. V. Du Bois, not of Walter Rodney. I think he absolutely... Because he has a deep philosophical understanding of what he wants to say, but then he does the homework to document it and, as Mao would say, seek truth from facts. So, since Hammer and Ho is always going to be my favorite book, there's a great line in there, a great paragraph I want to read. The name of the book is Hammer and Ho, Alabama Communists, There we go, during the Great Depression, is primarily Black Communists, right? So, there's a statement that says, angelo Herndon's attraction to communism also contained echoes of the past conditions were so bad he later wrote that many people believed the only way they could ever get better was to start a new war i was naively under the impression that the unemployed council was calling on negro and white workers to a new war the idea that the party's appearance marked the first skirmishes a new civil war was reiterated in a novel by myra page, a party member who spent considerable time with Alabama militants as one of our characters put it in the black belt, a long bit of scraps Bruin Us communists white and colored. going to lead it the first civil war didn't free them, but this one will but what distinguished this new war from the Civil War and Reconstruction was its international dimension. For many black radicals, the Russians were the new Yankees. Stalin was the new Lincoln, and the Soviet Union was the new Ethiopia, stretching forth her arms in defense of black folk. Southern propaganda depicting communists as Soviet agents worked to the party's advantage in black working class communities. The ideas of Soviet and northern radical support provided a degree of psychological confidence for African Americans hoping to wage the long awaited revolution in the south. With the collapse of biracial unionism and the failure of black middle class organizations to create a viable alternative. Most poor blacks had little confidence in their ability to initiate and sustain a movement. Without outside assistance, outnumbered and outgunned, thousands chose migration over militant organization, which many saw as potentially suicidal. But a black woman from Oroville, Alabama provides a telling example in a letter to the daily worker, she wrote, we need some help in pushing the movement here, we will keep all your orders secret, tell us what we must do let us hear us from you folks up there the point was that ironically the very advanced black communists in alabama in the 1930s understood that they could not win a revolution without outside forces how ironic that in 1954 when the united states finally tried to allegedly get rid of you know racial segregation it was the Part of communist influence in Africa, in Asia, and Latin America, and the United States, just like the black communists in Alabama said, we need the Soviet Union to help us, and we need people in the North. For a moment, they got both. And for a moment, we had our revolution. So with that, Robin D.G. Kelly.
2: Good evening um and for some people i know who are watching it's, it's late and for my students just hang in there um because they get extra credit you have to, you have to write a paragraph okay um i have a lot of thank yous to do uh and i'm gonna set my timer because i'm like time is short and i want to make sure i could hear everyone okay so let me first say some um thank you. Oops. okay This yes. i've got some show and tell as well okay so first of all there's a bunch of thank yous i, I want to begin by thanking the co-panelists who are going to speak um, after me because we're all here speaking together i mean jamala rogers and imani and ashley anderson akuna Um, I mean, we're talking about like star-studded panel of people thinking about these questions, Um, and I'm just great colleagues. Uh, But I especially want to give I want to give a special, special thank you uh, to Patricia Rodney. Uh, My 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 life is basically done. I don't have to do anything else because Patricia Rodney said my name. So (laughs) I'm like I'm done and to to asha and by the way happy birthday uh pat because um, you know just, i won't even say the age but it's just amazing amazing person but i want to thank uh, uh uh pat and asha uh along with panini and shaka for just the critically urgent work you do uh with the foundation and i want to um i'm just going to raise this a little bit I encourage all of you who are here all of you who are watching Uh, to do everything you can to support the Walter Rodney Foundation. Go online, look them up, contribute some money, participate in all their events, because they're doing so much. I mean, first of all, the foundation has been like at the center of this long struggle to expose the Burnham regime's cover-up of the state-directed assassination of Walter Rodney. And they're also doing this ongoing work that really matters to all of us around our freedom, liberation of working people, the demand for reparations, um, and putting out all of this amazing work by Walter. I mean, he he published 13 books at least, and there's more to come. Um, And of course, I have to thank uh, Patricia and Asha especially for the opportunity to work with the great Jesse Benjamin to finish what i'd started three decades earlier in terms of collecting uh walter's uh writings on the russian revolution in that book is now out and of course it's available here uh, at strategy and soul last but not least of course i need to thank eric uh my longtime friend and comrade and channing and Barbara and Akuna again as part of the team and all the folks I've known over the years at Strategy Center. And it's worth noting, and and Eric didn't say this, but it's worth noting that the very same year, 1971, when uh, Walter Rodney was, was racing to complete how Europe underdeveloped Africa, Eric Mann was in a prison cell racing to complete his book on George Jackson comrade george an investigation to the official story of his assassination his work for the people in their response to his death, which also came out in 1972 so they're working simultaneously on these projects in, in many ways connected um, so. Thank you for that all that. Um, now my time is really short and I don't want to take much of it so i'm going to do a couple of things, uh, first of all um, i'm committed to uh of course supporting the work of the National Leadership School for Str- Strategic Organizing and the Walter Rodney Foundation um I want to begin by uh, telling you my journey to this book because you know this is this is my first and only copy physical copy of How Europe Underdeveloped Africa which I bought uh in 1980 right no that's not true 83 at the 83 this is a Howard University uh, press edition um and I say 19 I, I say 1980 because that's also the year uh Walter was assassinated uh but my journey was different you know it's like Walter Rodney was a household name in the early 80s you know, nowadays um becoming so more so um, and I can say without hyperbole that reading how Europe underdeveloped Africa is the reason I went to graduate school I didn't go to graduate school to study U.S. history. I went to study African history, and I wanted to do what Walter Rodney did, and I could prove it. You know, people use hyperbole all the time. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, that changed my life. I could prove it because I brought with me my undergraduate thesis, which says, it's titled Structural Change and Underdevelopment in Niger, the Transition to a Grounded Economy 1983, spring. and this was entirely framed around theories of underdevelopment that Walter Rodney presented, which is different from dependency theory. I'll get to that in a second. But I have, I have the receipts, you know, I have, I have the evidence. Um, and it just so happened that I went to UCLA to study Mozambique with the intention of studying political economy and understanding underdevelopment in Mozambique. I ended up switching fields for various reasons. But I got to UCLA by serendipity uh, just when my advisor, Edward Alpers, Ned Alpers, actually had Walter Rodney's papers in his office. You know, um, the Rodney family had to flee uh, Guyana, as you know, um, and a lot in all the, the chaos of, of trying to resettle, um, the papers were in his office temporarily. And I got to work on this project. I got to touch those papers. I was there, um, and I was also at UCLA when Bobby Hill was on the faculty. And you know, Bobby Hill is very close to to Walter, a friend and comrade. So the connection only deepened. Now, uh, Walter Rodney's journey to the book, of course, um, part of that story was already told uh, by by Patricia Rodney. So I'm not going to repeat that. Uh, what I will say is that um, uh, you know. There's a lot written about him. Rupert Lewis has this wonderful biography. There's a new forthcoming biography coming out by uh, Leo Zelig, a revolutionary for our time. Um, And then also um, uh, Patricia mentioned Kareem Hirji's wonderful book, The Enduring Relevance of Walter Rodney's How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, which does a really beautiful job of explaining its significance, responding to critics, laying out lessons that we might take so all that stuff I'm not going to repeat but I will say that you know in in Zillig's book which is about to come out you know I'm lucky I have access to all kinds of things I'm not out yet but that's because I'm I'm who I am I'm, I'm me I'm very lucky I'm very fortunate I'm like blessed but I got to read the book it's, it's really interesting but he makes an important observation about Rodney that really underscores the work we're trying to do at the school um and in many ways uh eric was absolutely right uh no one no one i can think of more than walter rodney embodies the values and principles of the school no one and i and i'm not saying that in with hesitation if you don't believe me go online and watch him speak at hunter college right in 1978 november and just watch what he's speaking he's invited by the caribbean students association he gives this amazing speech of course, no notes. I can't do that. Um, and his groundedness, right in that moment, let alone all the things that he wrote or have been written about him, you can see how serious he takes the intellectual work and the political work. For him, there's no separation, right? Um, and I'm going to actually place something at the end of this talk. So let me just say what he says. So he he, he says, um, Zelik says, um, Roddy was a Marxist for our time. A man who spent his life on political education, aware that it was only through careful and painstaking study that capitalism could be known and ultimately overthrown. Of course, that is our task. Because um, time is short, I'm going to skip over biographical uh, background. Um, I just say a few basic things. You know, of course, he grew up in Guyana, uh, his, um, he got his bachelor's degree from the University of West Indies, 1963, PhD from the uh, School of Oriental and African Studies in London, and there he, hook, he hooked up with a group of Pan-African intellectuals, uh, including CLR James, who became a friend and mentor. He completed his dissertation in 1966 at age 24, and it was published in 1970 under the title A History of the, a History, um, of the Upper Guinea Coast, 1545 to 1800. Uh, and then, you know, then I won't go into other things, but he ends up. Uh, I'm not going to repeat this, but he ends up going to Jamaica. Uh, uh, he goes to University of Dar es Salaam first, and then he ends up in Jamaica. And you know the story of him being um, denied access uh, his return to Jamaica while he's at a Black Writers Conference in Montreal, which ultimately, of course, you know, you heard led to. The publication of of the Grounding with My Brothers, which was the first publication to come out of um, uh, of of the publishing company that they created that put out How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. One other thing before I get to the basic arguments of the of the book, as Eric said in the opening remarks, um, or he hinted at the 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 role of the University of Dar es Salaam was very very important. Uh, As as Patricia said, he didn't write alone. He shared his work with his students. He accepted and engaged them critically uh, and took them seriously, I mean, very seriously, uh, and it shaped his thinking. While he was there at DAR, he was part of an initiative called the Group of Nine that pushed to turn the university into a place for real revolutionary praxis. Um, could you imagine that happening at UCLA? Not. Nah. Um, but a real a force to build socialism. And you have to consider the context, too. Uh, This is a moment, you know, he's writing this in 1971. As as Patricia said, you know, he was working on the the, uh, Russian Revolution material and then he then pivoted to write this book and wrote it very quickly and very powerfully. But this is a moment when the political winds are shifting toward Marxism-Leninism. In the early 70s, the question of the socialist path for Africa was not settled. Uh, in fact, it seemed that socialism was winning. So you've got to remember that. We're in the neoliberal moment now, it doesn't feel that way. But then, this was the period of anti colonial wars in Mozambique, in Guinea Bissau, in uh, Angola, in South Africa, in Zimbabwe. There were struggles in the People's Republic of the Congo, not to mention Vietnam. There were many tendencies and debates and party affiliations happening on campus at DAR. And Rodney himself wasn't sectarian. But he was, a, he was a Marxist with original ideas. Uh, and I'll say more about that in a second. Always open to criticism, always open to engagement. And, and as Patricia said, he listened to his students who gave him critical feedback on his manuscript. Now, the, some of the basic arguments of the book. The book in my view is a Marxist interpretation of African history with a focus on Africa's role in the rise and development of the capitalist world system. So slavery and colonialism were fundamental features of capitalist development, they were not incidental. This is one of the points he makes. Um, And no matter what we might think of capital in the abstract, the historical reality is that the peculiar manner in which capitalism developed over 500 years, rapidly developed the productive forces in Europe and the US while arresting the development uh, of those productive forces in Africa, even as the continent was continually a source of wealth through labor raw materials markets knowledge and technology and here um, Rodney echoes Marx in arguing that there was economic growth without development that is to say even when there was increased production improved and expanded uh, productive forces and new technologies colonial exploitation did not advance the colony it did not improve the lives of colonial working classes or the peasantry Surpluses extracted and exported wages consistently suppressed land was destroyed stripped of nutrients from monocrops ripped through with mines and gas and oil reserves trees and bush cleared deforestation water polluted the list goes on and so i think it's important to remember um, that long before David Harvey wrote about accumulation by dispossession, or many of us kind of concluded what Marx called that, that what Marx called primitive accumulation or primary accumulation was ongoing. Rodney was already organized, already arguing that you know in how Europe developed Africa. Africa was he he makes the argument, and he's right about this. In many ways, exceptional compared to the rest of the world. The greatest extraction of wealth human beings, um, you know, generated the social and economic catastrophe in world history, you know, the worst social and economic, economic catastrophe in world history, so consider what it means to turn virtually the entire continent into a war zone. So we speak, you know, glibly about Europe's hundred year war, you know, and much of its fought course on the sea not even on land but we say very little about the 400 year war right the 400 year war on the African continent the displacement the death and destruction that followed um and we're talking about societies that were the first to make iron where the first universities in the world existed where you know, societies that exported cloth so um let me just move on to one other thing so we need to be clear that when I say that Walter Rodney's arguments were wholly original um, I'm also arguing against the idea that this book is merely one of many books within the dependency school of thought That is like the school of development and under, under development founded by Andre Gunder Frank, Fernando Cardoso, Paul Baran, um, Samir Amin who's I think distinct as well but so let me just very quickly say what is dependency theory? The basic premise is that the historical process of direct and neo-colonialism led to the integration of, you know, um, respective uh, uh, peripheral countries into the global capitalist system. And this ensured not only a subordinate status for those nations, but it ensured uh, the super exploitation of labor, cheap extraction of raw materials, the massive transfer surplus, to the Metropole, not into those countries, the colonial countries. Um, The theory as it was developed was a response to liberal development theory, this idea that every country must go through stages in the colonial and former colonies, colonial uh, nations and former colonies uh, are said to be poor and underdeveloped because they're poor and underdeveloped. it's kind of you know but so what they have to do is kind of go through the stage where they could take off as as ww ross would put it and of course this is a ridiculous claim because it overlooks the fact that the so-called underdeveloped countries were already part of a world system not discrete isolated economies because of the uneven exploitative nature of this integration early theories of underdevelopment define their relationship as one of dependency. But what what, uh, Walter Vandi did was he took some of this literature and drew, especially on the writings of Samir Amin, who I'd suggest everyone read, with whom he was in dialogue, but then he did something different. His approach was more dialectical. He emphasized how slavery and colonial extraction built the modern West. It was not as if capitalism developed in Europe and just kind of sucked up the world's resources like a sponge, But on the contrary, development of capitalism was was dialectic. It could not have taken place in the form it did without slavery and colonialism, okay? Um, Or to put it differently, the dynamic process of capital accumulation depended on Africa, which is a point of contention as we'll see with, with bourgeois scholars. So by documenting the rich and varied history of pre-colonial societies, Rodney puts to rest this myth that Africa was simply kind of like backwards, undeveloped, with no viable economy, no governance structure. Um, When he did that, he wasn't trying to prove that Africa had a history equivalent to Europe. That wasn't his point. It wasn't like an Afrocentric kind of argument. Um, He wasn't trying to prove African humanity. He kind of took that for granted, as we all should, right? Instead. Through his particular lens, his Marxist lens, he set out to understand class formation, production, uh, and the precise forms of social organization and political economy of Africa through this framework of uneven development. So, understanding pre colonial social formation within Africa itself, the political structures, knowledge formation, culture, ecology, material conditions, the internal dynamics of class struggles um he was better prepared or we were better prepared to comprehend the impact of the slave trade and why is this important because you know we dealt with a whole new body of scholarship after uh Walter's death where there's scholars who are basically saying that um, African rulers themselves were just as responsible for the slave trade right as Europeans and they're really equal partners John Thornton these people Now, Walter Vaughn is very clear, you know, the kidnapping and export of some 12 to 15 million people could not have taken place without complicity of some African ruling classes. However, he's also very clear that that there are two facts we have to remember. One, it was European demand, right, the product of New World plantation economies that was a catalyst for modern slavery, number one. Number two, there was no ready-made market. There was no market of slaves, right? Even if you have a, the trans-Saharan slave trade, that wasn't a market per se. Um, but the enslavement that became the Mafà, the catastrophe, um, was one that was ge- that generated warfare, that generated banditry, generated kidnapping. You turned the whole continent, particularly the West and central African parts, um, as into a war zone, creating massive social violence and instability and one of the shocking statistics that he comes up with that he reveals is that the African continent was the only continent between 1650 and 1850 that showed no population growth whatsoever none It remained steady all others grew so you're talking about killing one-fifth of the continent's population right and when we talk about death I'm not talking about death in the middle passage the first passage that is the, the wars that took place to produce enslaved people um but of course the professional Africanists had issues with the book some of it was straight up red baiting you know they criticized him for being too friendly to the soviet camp accused him of being too deterministic um, not granting africans more agency um, it's all these different claims of course they all could be rebutted easily but i want to talk about two critiques in particular two criticisms in particular two uh reviews that are telling because it says a lot about not just the failure to read Rodney, but the kind of uh, the, the the level of advanced thinking that he brought to bear that a lot of these Marxists themselves couldn't even come to grips with. So, for example, Martin Klein, distinguished historian of slavery, wrote a review in 1974, and he says Rodney's book will trouble many professional scholars. Uh, more because tone than its substance. Unlike those Marxists who write for other scholars, (laughs) Rodney goes out of his way to be abrasive. There are constant references to bourgeois apologists and capitalist parasites. (laughs) Now, Klein generally credits Walter Rodney for originality, precision of argument, um, but he concedes those things. But he still takes him to task for being a popular marxist that is to say with the people writing for the people he wrote the book for people to read for the working class to read You didn't write about academics you no know? um, he also took him to task for being for oversimplifying dialectical processes and this is a liberal historian by the way for exaggerating the importance of africa for europe's economy though he never once gives gives any counter evidence and of course Rodney not only demonstrates exactly how the colonized paid for the colonial state, because he, he proves it. Um, he, he shows, they paid for it through taxation, they paid for it through forced labor, through the surplus extracted, through military conscription, through currency boards, through banking, through the looting of art, through the loss of their land and mineral wealth. I, don't, I have never seen a treaty having it between a European nation and an African nation that said, okay, we're going to pay you for the land we took. Like we're going to this is we figured the acreage is worth X amount, we're going to pay you never. So he demonstrates who paid for colonialism and what how much wealth was extracted, and we'll get to that at the very end. So he also demonstrates how this kind of super exploitation of African resources and the use of forced labor and increased taxation and depressed wages actually saved Europe during the Depression, right? He, he's very clear about this, right? They kept Europe afloat during the Depression. And he goes on to bust all the myths about the so-called benefits of colonialism, which I'm not gonna go into. Um, there's another critique I found interesting by uh, a South African Marxist, uh, some of you who are watching I know know uh, this. this, is Martin Legasik. So Martin Legasic uh south african marxist uh he wrote a review uh, of the book and placed the book squarely within the dependency theory camp but legastic did not like how rodney quote rodney's called marxism is at crucial points overtaken by its african nationalism even the title has this implication you know so he's uncomfortable with like why why like down on europe <laughs> And this is Martin Legassic. now I'm going to tell you why this is funny in a second but let me say a couple of things so he accuses Rodney of missing Marx's argument in other words he's also not a good Marxist um, argument misses Mark, misses, missing Marx's argument that while capitalism's revolutionizing of the productive forces leads to the concentration of the ownership of the means of production and in that creates inequalities and wealth and power um, Legasic says you no know, Marx also argued that um, that it can re- result or lead to quote higher real wages or higher living standards for the working class. He continues. Uh, he says, you no, know, indeed, to affirm that higher living standards may well be associated with higher technical rate of exploitation is essential to any systematic understanding of Marx's analysis. This is Lagasse, you know, basically lecturing Walter Rodney. The is not convinced that the drain of labor power caused by the slave trade had deleterious effects he says i'm not convinced he gives no counter argument right nor can he understand why european capitalists would choose to undermine and ultimately destroy local manufacturing in africa cloth in particular when in his words this is logassic in europe the domination and transformation of such forms of production was one of the factors in the emergence of capitalism in the factory system. The then writes, if one is not to resort to arguments about racist attitudes, what was special about the specific conjuncture of European merchant capital with African societies? Okay, so in other words, all these critiques point to a fundamental question. So why is Africa different? He's like, why is Africa? Are we gonna to resort to race? <laughs> That's what he says. We're going to resort to race? So why is it? And it's curious from the very person who that same year that he wrote the review, 1976, published what has been identified as the first article or pamphlet introducing the concept of racial capitalism in South Africa. He's the one, right? So Rodney's point is precisely that the racial colonial order was, design, was designed rather. To extract massive surplus that almost never translated into wage increases. Why? Because you got corvee labor. You know. Except when it did translate. How did it translate? Through class struggle. He shows that where, where the working classes were actually strong enough to organize, they did increase wages. It's class struggle. It's not like the laws of of the mechanics of of capitalism would just give them increased wages. Right? So he's saying racism, the impact of slave trade and colonial violence was key. So take, for example, cloth industry. He has a lot of stuff about the way that European merchants destroyed local cloth manufacturing. And I won't talk about all that, but, you know, all over Morocco, Mauritania, Senegambia, Ivory Coast, Benin, Yorbaland, uh, uh, Kanon, among the Hausa people, all these people are producing cloth. And they're exporting this cloth both across Africa and even to India through European middlemen, but then by the late 19th century, West Africa was exporting uh, cotton, right, but importing cloth from Europe. How did that happen? Europe was able to industrialize, therefore, mass-produced cheaper cloth, which undermined local economies. Now, um, what's interesting here is part of the capital that enabled that mass production came from where the slave trade and see it's like you would think martin legastic would know that and i can't speak ill of the dead but you know he just was wrong um mr racial capitalism right so why so of course Legasic asked the question why not just develop african manufacturers like capital should have just invested in african manufacturing and rodney actually ex- answers the question if he read the book carefully he says one violence and instability produced by slavery and war destroyed many internal economies two the fact that the economy was based largely on the removal of the most essential component for economic development that is the people it foreclosed other possible modes of development Um, okay a couple of things before I close he also accuses Rodney of ignoring uh, internal class formation in Africa and granting much too much power to the colonial state uh, but again he didn't read Rodney very carefully because he points out the very process of making a working class in Africa in the shift to a market economy in a colonial setting required methods that Marx of course called primitive accumulation forced labor taxes land theft lots of violence um to do that required what it required uh the um it required force it required uh military might it required police forces armies the militarization uh, of of the continent basically and extraction was used to create the infrastructure roads railroads wharfs, mining um equipment all that stuff um and Rodney's very clear that The period of colonial rule was actually really short. The period of formal colonial rule in Africa, really, you're talking about the late 19th century to about the 1960s, 70s. And so therefore, so much of that time was spent on infrastructure building. And another thing that he points out is that in the 20th century, the period of high colonialism, uh, the world experienced two world wars and a great depression. So during the Great Depression, they're using Africa as the ATM, right? To try to pop up European economies. During the First and Second World Wars, they're using African uh, men to fight in, in the military. And, he, and so let me just say a couple things about that real quickly. He, Rodney shows that you know, um, that wars were really, really important in terms of colonial extraction. In three ways. There's three roles that Africans played in both World Wars. One was to provide troops and laborers, uh, which, ironically, of course, they're fighting for colonial masters, um, each of their masters, right? In that respect, colonial forces, especially in World War I, that are fighting each other, all of whom are engaged in the exploitation and domination of African people. Um, two, to provide military bases. Three, to provide a wide range of raw materials that are essential for modern armament industries. I mean, you're talking about you know, radioactive substances for atomic and later nuclear weapons, including the hydrogen bomb. Um, and that brings me to the, to the last two things I wanna mention. One very quickly has to do with the role of the United States. One of the points that, that Walter Rodney makes in, in the book is that colonialism was uh, a form of what he calls economic partition. And By economic partition, he's talking about the fact that colonial states were not the sole kind of silo sucking up surplus and then sending it back to their particular metropole. That's not how it worked. Colonial states were managers. They, they were vehicles managing transnational capital. So a place like Mozambique had all kinds of international capital coming in. Same with the Congo. And so that's where the United States comes in. The US in the US involvement in colonial domination of Africa goes back to the 19th century. I mean, 1913, $150 million, sorry, $28 million in 1913 uh, represent US fair US uh, trade with Africa. In 1932, um, it was 150 million. 1948, $1.2 billion, right? Um, and that represented 50%, 15% of Africa's foreign trade. Uh, and the Marshall Plan became a Trojan horse. The Marshall Plan gave money uh, to mining companies through the Economic Commission for Africa uh, to exploit. And then some of that surplus went back to the United States. Uh, and finally, this is a book that deals forthrightly with the question of class struggle and empire. It's something we don't talk much about when we talk about this book, um, and I just want to read a passage here for you from the book, and Rodney writes, European workers have paid a great price for the few material benefits which accrued to them as crumbs from the colonial table. The class and power controls the dissemination of information. The capitalist misinformed and miseducated workers in the metropoles to the point where they became allies in colonial exploitation. In accepting to be led like sheep, European workers were perpetuating their own enslavement to capitalists. They ceased to seek political power and content themselves with bargaining for small wage increases, which were usually counterbalanced by increased cost of living. They ceased to be creative and allowed bourgeois cultural decadence to overtake them all. They failed to exercise any independent judgment on the great issues of war and peace, and therefore ended up by slaughtering not only colonial peoples, but also themselves. okay. Now, there are some exceptions to the rule, and, and Walter Roddy understood this, and, this is, and he makes this argument as well. And I, I know my, my friend Cherise Burden Stelly is, is, is watching, but there's this great book coming out on Black Scare, Red Scare. And one of the points that um, we have to remember. Is that in order to basically get workers behind imperialism, you had to crush the left, you had to crush the communist party, you had you know th- this was this was really necessary in order to basically get some level of consensus from the working class, and that's part of what happened, right? So, and Walter Rodney makes his point. He says, "Look, who was it? Post World War One Germany, right? Who massacred?" the German communists. Who was it? It was the German forces in East Africa, in World War I, who had already done some massacring there, came back home to massacre the communists, right? Same thing with Spanish Civil War. The communist-led Popular Front fighting for social democratic Spain against fascism was defeated by who? Franco's Army of Africa, the colonial army, right? So colonial forces go there and come back and bring the fascism that started there back home. And when you think about World War II, what's World War II? When you you basically are using your resources created from fascism, that is colonialism is fascism, those raw materials, resources, human labor power, African troops to fight against fascists, so one kind of fascism to fight against another kind of fascism, Du Bois understood this. And that leads me to the final point I wanna make, and I'm gonna play something for you, which is, if there's anything, this book does many things, but I want to make the case that how Europe underdeveloped Africa is the best brief we have for reparations. And by reparations, we cannot make the mistake, the error of thinking, A, that reparations is only about slavery and enslavement. It's about colonialism. Two, that reparations is only about American descendants. <laughs> I didn't want to get into that. But W.E.B. Du Bois insisted at the very birth of the United Nations that we need to declare colonialism a crime against humanity. And of course, he got shot down. And it didn't happen. It didn't happen because the UN was designated to only recognize nations and not peoples. Attacking colonialism was considered an assault on the sovereignty of the colonizing nations. So if you critique colonialism, you're critiquing Britain. Right and preserving the Anglo-American alliance was far more important than the plight of 750 million peoples in Africa, Asia, and the Caribbean. Um, So that's sort of where we are okay that's what I think this is the best brief we have to make the case for reparations for colonialism. So I want to end not with my voice, but with uh, Walter Rodney's Rodney's voice, and this is an audio clip the speech he, he gives I mentioned before. At hunter college november 1978 sponsored by the caribbean students association and it's a beautiful lecture he talks about the importance of praxis he emphasizes uh you know world systems theory the limits of natural independence um the need for a counter vision to the vision of ruling class and then he also asked a question like he says you know we need to stop being prescriptive we need to stop saying what we should do to fix the problem but rather ask the question, who makes the changes rather than what changes are made? And by that, he says, we cannot expect the petty bourgeoisie to to lead a new revolution, but rather working people and the peasants must be the force and the source of new ideas, right? Um, And he says that the movement must be, you know, must be driven by working-class ideology. But the little uh, section I wanna play for you here is a part of the speech that we sometimes miss, and I don't want to say much about it. But if you listen carefully, he is making a case. He is anticipating the neoliberal order to come. He's saying that the neoliberal turn essentially means that we're going to see the the export of the class relations in the West, the United States and in Europe onto the global south onto the third world and he anticipated places like brazil south korea south africa india and elsewhere where it's no longer a simple source of raw materials but whole processes of class relations right reproduced and so therefore the class rule in places like brazil and india in south africa are in alliance with the the class rule in the so-called metropoles And that's the world we're in. So let's listen to Walter Rodney, and I'll stop there. Thank
3: you. Now, This decline in social and economic circumstances of the third world is not merely an export of the crisis in the metropoles in material terms, but more profoundly, looking at it, I think it is the export or the re-export of particular class relations of production. I'm going to try and deal with that concept. If it doesn't come over very clearly it's because I myself am struggling to achieve some clarity with the idea. But I believe it to be that, that, that there, is some, there is a fundamental truth in that direction. That at the present moment the international capitalist world is using the opportunity of the crisis to ensure that it replicates a certain type of social relationships on a world scale. That it is trying to ensure that the classes which will arise within Africa and the Caribbean will both mirror the classes that exist in Europe and more importantly ensure the patterns of flow of surplus from from all parts of the world to the central capitalist parts of the world. Because in the midst of all of this decline about which I have spoken, nothing is clearer than the fact that in Africa and the Caribbean a certain minority has continued to accumulate. If it is a fact that the nations as a whole have grown poorer, then it is equally a fact that a certain minority has grown much richer. And we don't need to spend a lot of time at the moment in trying to be very precise in defining this new class that is emerging. It seems to me that it is hard to dispute the empirical evidence that it is emerging that wherever its focus may be and i think it changes from one african country or one caribbean country to another there is this class emerging and that it is very closely tied to the state apparatus and uses that for the purposes of its own reproduction now everywhere that is true that this class has been defending its accumulation at the expense of the increasing immiseration uh, and pauperization of large majorities of the peoples in this country. But these classes find it difficult to carry out this feat unaided. Within the context of the international crisis, even those sectors of of the peripheral African and Caribbean ruling class, which had sought a measure of freedom from capitalist domination, are now returning to underscore and to subscribe once more to the domination of capital in a frank alliance which recognizes the sovereignty as it were of metropolitan capital in its multinational form and recognizes at the same time that they will play a subordinate role a role which for them involves the the perk that they will at least be able to continue with the exploitation of the labor of their own peoples.
1: This is Channing Martinez, producer of Voices from the Front Lines. Thank you for tuning in to Voices and a great first clip of Robin Kelly speaking about the legacy of Walter Rodney. Again, this show is going to be a series. And so next week we will hear other speakers that spoke at the Strategy and Soul Movement Center. Again, this is the fun drive, we want to do everything to help out KPFK, we are offering today three premiums. The first one is $100 for How Europe Underdeveloped Africa by Walter Rodney, the second one is $100 for Dispatches from Durban by Eric Mann, and $250 for the four DVD set of Paul Robeson Portrait of the Artist support kpfk today by calling 818-985-5735 again that's 818-985-5735 to support kpfk and voices from the front lines these are three great premiums and we know you'll love them and they contribute to the mission of kpfk call today all power to the people i'll see you next week
3: Along the byway